good morning. morning. Welcome here. Um, kids, uh, kids are afraid of a lot of things, right? Our, our kids are terrified of, of a lot of things. They're terrified of being downstairs by themselves. They're terrified of being upstairs by themselves. They're terrified of, uh, of crabs. It's a weird one, right? Like crabs is like one of our kids, that's like his greatest fear is like crabs. The pinchers really freak him out. But I can't really blame them because when I was a kid, I was, I was scared of a lot of things and I've shared some of that before. But I had a very unique fear. I had a few unique fears, but one very unique fear I had was the fear of time travel. I was terrified of it. Terrified of the idea of time travel, something that doesn't even exist. When I was a kid, I saw Back to the Future and it was, Christopher Lloyd was the most terrifying person I had ever, I had ever seen in my whole life. Those, that, the, the hair and the eyes and everything, it freaked me out so much. When I was a teenager still, I would have these nightmares of Christopher Lloyd popping into my room and ranting about some rip in the space-time continuum. And then a little bit later on, I watched uh, Field of Dreams, and I loved the movie, but I felt somewhat betrayed because my parents hadn't told me that there was time travel in this movie too. So I loved the movie, but when Kevin Costner finds himself in the 1950s, I mean, that was absolutely terrifying for me as well. And I eventually got over it, and now time travel is one of my favorite uh, genres of movies and shows. We watched uh, The Atom Project just last week. Uh, a little while back, we watched uh, The Tomorrow War with Chris Pat- Pratt. And then uh, recently, we watched uh, Marvel Avengers Infinity War, which is probably my favorite uh, Marvel movie. And so I, I, love these, I love these movies, but I realized as I kind of thought about all the, the movies and shows I've watched recently that involve time travel, I realized that our culture is kind of obsessed with this. Again, for, for something that doesn't actually technically exist, there is a disproportionately large amount of time travel content in, in shows and movies. And the question is, why? Why is this so compelling for us? And maybe it's just that it's fun, right? Like maybe it's just that it's, it's really fun to imagine yourself visiting your, your dorky 12-year-old self or traveling ahead and seeing some cataclysmic events in the future. Like that's, that's just good times, right? But maybe there's, maybe there's something deeper going on. Here's, here's a bit more of a philosophical take. Maybe we are so drawn to time travel stories because a lot of them tell us that we can actually exercise some control over time. That this force that we all feel like we're kind of victims of and it just kind of marches on whether we like it or not and it, it seals our past events in unalterable concrete that given the right technology we might actually be able to overcome that force. We might actually be able to to manipulate time in some way. And I I think we experience this frustration. I think think time travel taps into a kind of a frustration that we have, that we want to have some control over time, but simply aren't able to. It lies beyond our grasp. And that's actually something that the author of Ecclesiastes thought about as, as well. Uh, we said last week, this is a very contemporary book that gets at all kinds of searches, all kinds of frustrations that we feel in the modern world. He, he experienced this too. And so let's pray, and then we're going to get into Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Lord, I, I thank you again for this morning. And I just ask, um, Lord, that you would speak to us, that our hearts would be open and soft to what you have to say, that you would be our focus Hear, Lord, and that we would hear uh, your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And we're going to just start in verses 1 to 8. This is probably the most well-known passage in Ecclesiastes, the one that if any text in Ecclesiastes gets preached, it's, it's probably this one. So the author of Ecclesiastes says, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. She says there's a time for everything. And every, everything has its season under the heavens. And we talked about that phrase a little bit last week. Under the sun or under the heavens, same kind of deal. And this is not referring to the world that God will one day make. It's not God's ultimate dream for the world. But, but the world under the sun, under the heavens, is the world as we find it right now. It's, it's the world under the curse of sin, the world held in bondage to sin and death. It's the world ever since Genesis 3. And Ecclesiastes says that in this world that we find ourselves in, all of these kinds of things happen. There is a season for all of these different activities. And he, uh, he goes through 14 contrasting pairs, and we'll look at them some pretty briefly, but we'll, we'll go through them. The first one, a time to, born, to be born and a, a time to die, obviously for the most part is out of someone's control. You don't really have any say, and when, you, uh, when you're born, for the most part, you usually don't have any say, and, and when you die either, your existence on earth begins and ends largely due to forces outside of your control. The second pair is, is similar to that. You're talking about plants. There's a time to plant, a time to uproot. Uh, you, you can, if you want, try to, uh, to plant seeds in, in December. You could burrow through the eight feet of snow we got last year, dig a little hole, plant some carrot seeds. You're welcome to do that. You're welcome to be an idiot. It's not, it's not going to work out well for you because there are certain seasons where it makes sense to plant and to harvest, seasons where those things will result in the, in the best results. Result in the best results. Most, in the most fruitfulness, I meant to say. It's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. Those probably have to do with, uh, with warfare and peace. The same thing at the very end. We get this line about a time for war and a time for peace. And, and even in verse 5, actually, there, there's, there's this mention of a time to scatter stones. And uh, some, some people have said, well, that probably has to do with warfare as well. Uh, in 2 Kings, Elisha tells the Israelites that they're going to overthrow their enemies and ruin all their good fields with stones, which is like a, a particularly annoying form of retribution, isn't it? Like, not only are we going to burn down your villages, but we're going to scatter stones on your field that'll take you a while to pick up again. But it's a form of warfare to ruin good fields with, with stones. So, so there are seasons, especially in the ancient world for warfare, when a, a nation would attack another nation, when a nation wanted to extend its its influence, its presence in the world. These were seasons of warfare. A lot of even peace-loving people in our world today would say there are times where warfare tragically is necessary. Uh, a lot of people would point to World War II 
kind of the, the response to Nazi provocations leading up to that. A lot of even peace-loving people today in Canada would say, well, Ukraine is justified in defending itself militarily against the Russian invasion. Those kinds of things people would say there's, there's a season for war. And, and even Christians who would disagree with war on basically any principle would still have to reckon in the Old Testament with God instructing his people in warfare. I was telling my kids a particularly lethal Old Testament story the other night as a bedtime story. <laughs> some, some years from now, they'll be preaching sermons where they talk about the nightmares that their father gave them. Uh, but uh, I was telling them this, and Natalie goes, you know, Dad, there's a lot of killing in the Old Testament. <laughs> yes, there is. And I explained how we see things differently in, in light of Jesus and, and how there are particular reasons God instructed his people in those ways before Jesus, but, but still kind of proves this point that in the scope of history, in the big picture, there have been seasons of, of warfare, of killing, of tearing down, and other seasons of building up and reconciling and restoring what war has, has torn apart. There are different seasons for, uh, for different emotions, a time to mourn and, and, and a time to, to weep and a time to laugh and a, a time to dance. You know, if you think about uh, if you were at a funeral and uh, someone that you loved had passed away and and it's the somber moment, and you are particularly remembering the absence of this person, and suddenly somebody walks down the aisle, waltzing in, twirling a ribbon, dr brightly dressed, you know, laughing and dancing and singing. You go, this might be a time, this might be a time to tear down, this might be a time to, to hurt. <laughs> but, um, but on the flip side, I was, I was doing some reading on Chris Farley last week for an illustration, and I came across a clip that I hadn't seen in a while, uh, the whole thing is, is Chris Farley is in a restaurant. This is a Saturday Night Live skit. He's in a restaurant, and he's drinking coffee. And it's like a hidden, uh, hidden camera commercial. And so the, the server comes up to him, and he says to him, hey, did you know that you're actually drinking decaffeinated coffee crystals? And the whole idea here is that it, it tastes so good that he's going to be happy and impressed. But instead... <laughs> You have to watch it. He, he just, he gets so angry. He's like, you lied to me. He flips over the table and he starts choking the waiter and everything. And it's like, the whole humor is that this was a time to laugh, but not, not a time to, to rage or to, to weep or whatever Chris Farley is doing. So different, uh, different responses, different emotions are appropriate in different kinds of circumstances. Uh, verse 5 already touched on a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, but... I will tell you, there was, there was an ancient Jewish interpretation uh, that said this verse is actually about uh, sexual activity, and I'll let you connect the dots with the, gather, or the, the scattering of stones with that. But the second pair is definitely having to do with physical affection, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. There are, there are times where physical affection are, is appropriate and times where it's not. I'll touch on that a little bit later on. A time to search and, and a time to give up. And the wisdom here has to do with the value of, of what is lost. If it's, your, if it's your wedding ring that you've lost, you're going to keep on searching. You're going to look pretty hard for that. If it's a Sunday school craft that your kid made last week that they've lost, five minutes in, I would say it's, it's time, actually probably four minutes before that. It was time, it was time to give up. <laughs> There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. I'm just going to keep with this craft reference because it's a big deal in our household. Our kids don't watch a lot of TV, so they make crafts. They, they hoard cardboard boxes and, and fast food fry containers and bits and pieces of packaging from the mail. 
and, uh, and they hoard this stuff, and then they'll, they'll start making something, and it's, it's very creative, it's, it's very impressive, but they'll kind of half make it, and then it just sits on the table for weeks afterwards. And if Carolyn and I try to get rid of it, because it's time to throw it away, kids, it's biblical, they think it's a time to mourn and weep <laughs> for like, in, like hours. So they need to learn. It's, it's a time to throw away. <laughs> And of course, you know, like when in your stages of life, when you're, when you're getting married, when you're having kids, you accumulate stuff, you get lots of things. For a couple of years there, Carolyn was sending me every day on the, on the swap site to go pick up free kids' junk from different houses. And, and then when you get to a certain point uh, later on, maybe you downsize, you give everything away, you sell it, you move into a one-bedroom place. Investors are always asking the question, is this the time to keep stocks or to, or to sell them off? There, there's wisdom needed in these different seasons of life when it's time for these, for these actions. A time to tear and a time to mend really quickly, that probably has to do again with grief. That when, uh, when somebody died in the ancient world, uh, you, you tear your clothes in, in grief or even as a sign of repentance. So there are seasons where deep, authentic, personal repentance is necessary, something that our, our culture could probably learn about. A time to be silent and a time to speak. This is, this is one of the ones that the wisdom literature in the Old Testament especially emphasizes. That there is wisdom needed in knowing when to speak and when to be, when to be silent. There's a, there are these two consecutive proverbs that some people I've heard, I've heard cite as evidence for how the Bible contradicts itself. Proverbs 26 verses 4 and 5 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. So you go, well, are you supposed to answer a fool according to his folly, or aren't you? But it's, it's not actually a contradiction, because it depends on the fool. It depends on the situation. Because there are some situations where to speak, to engage a fool, would be to just drain your energy and get sucked into their pit of tomfoolery. And there would be other situations where maybe the fool is receptive to wisdom or perhaps where there are others present who might benefit from this. And this is especially relevant, of course, this whole question when it comes to social media, when it comes to the internet in general. Um, there's this, this legendary comment brawl that broke out on an Australian news site uh, that posted a cake recipe. So it was a rainbow cake with like the number, like the year, like let's say five years old, kind of baked into the cake. So kind of cool concept. Uh, and, and in the comment section underneath, somebody had said, how, how long do I need to freeze the numbers for? And somebody else responded kind of sarcastically till they're frozen, like all caps. And that sarcastic response to what may or may not have been a foolish question soon devolved into people uh, calling each other dirty, filthy, liberal communists, uh, hypocritical conservatives, blasting each other's parenting styles, casting epithets and swearing at each other on the comment section for a cake recipe. I mean, it is, the internet is a cesspool. And so for the most part, the wisdom here is stay silent. Don't engage the fools and the trolls of social media. There are seasons, you've got to know the times. And finally, because uh, we've talked about war and, and a time for peace, he says there's a time to love and a, and a time to hate. And we might recoil at that uh, at first, 
See, no, 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 it's always time to love. But of course, God hates evil. He hates injustice. He hates it when sin undermines his good creation, when his people are oppressed, when death reigns supreme in a culture. There are seasons and times where where hatred is called for, just as there are many seasons and times where where love is called for. See, like the main main point that's being made here is that these these times, these seasons that exist in life, they they happen to us. We, We don't have a lot of say in the matter. We, we don't have a lot of control here. That we, As we go through life, we find ourselves in these seasons. We, we try to exert our force on time. We try to bend it to our will. We, we try to just do what we want when we want it. But wisdom comes in recognizing the seasons of life and living accordingly. And living accordingly means recognizing that particular actions are appropriate in some situations and not others. You know how to a hammer everything is a nail. Well, here we see that, no, actually, there are different actions appropriate for different situations. And I want to I use an example here that maybe touches a bit of a sensitive spot, but I, th- I think it's important to name this. I want to I go back to talking just, a, just briefly about sex. Because in our culture... Sexual activity is almost universally celebrated and, and affirmed. Uh, that there is there's basically no limits. Uh, and, and to think that there should be limits or restrictions with a few notable uh, exceptions is seen as, as being prudish and, and oppressive. And, and yet the Bible tells us that sex really is a good Thing, a good gift given by a good God that's meant for human flourishing. It's something that should be celebrated, but there is a particular season. There's a particular time where this is appropriate. And according to the word of God, it is in marriage, this season. And marriage between a man and a woman is the season in which that, that God has kind of marked out this is where this action works best. And when we can fight against that as a culture, we can, we can reject that, and, and we do. We're, we're free to do that. Um, but but the, the result is that, that outside of what God has given as the season for this activity, outside of that biblical ideal of sexual morality, sex outside of that is as fruitless, spiritually speaking, as planting carrot seeds in December. It just doesn't, when we kind of work on our own authority instead of God's authority, we, we, don't, we don't get to live into the fullness of God's creating us in his image. We, we, don't, we don't get to see God working through us in the fullness of what he intends if we don't act according to the seasons of life that he himself has marked out. There is wisdom in recognizing the seasons and living accordingly. But how do you get that wisdom? of recognizing the seasons and the actions needed. Well, that's kind of where the author of Ecclesiastes goes next. So verse 9, he says, What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. 
Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been. And what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. So this kind of gets into some stuff we looked at uh, last week. We started in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes. The author's search for meaning in all of these different places. And in the end, he kind of goes, look, in the end, you, you just you eat and you drink. You, you find satisfaction in your toil. You just try to make the most of it. And there's something there again, that, that as the seasons of life, we, we kind of enter and pass through those seasons, that we find joy as we simply kind of accept this is the season of life. Make the most of it. You know, the the author says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. But the struggle here, the struggle to actually find satisfaction and meaning is that God has put eternity in the human heart. And some people, uh, maybe the most natural kind of interpretation uh, of that for us is to say, well, God has somehow wired us for a, a desire for eternity, a desire for immortality. We, we desperately want to know and believe that life doesn't just end at the grave, that life extends beyond that. And so you'll hear, you'll hear people who don't even have a lot of strong convictions about who God is still express these kind of sentiments, like, well, this person's in, in a happier place, they're, they're in a better place, and so on. There was, a, there was a survey done years ago that found that 32% of kind of non-religious people still believed in an afterlife. You know, maybe don't believe in God, but they believe that there is something like heaven. And so people are, are wired for this. But a lot of scholars say that's not what, uh, what Ecclesiastes meant, that exact kind of thing. Uh, instead, what, what he meant was that God has given humans a kind of consciousness that there is more to life than any present moment. Now, humans are uniquely able to reflect on the past and plan for the future, to to experience regret about what's happened in the past, to to be anxious about what is to come, that that we as humans are are uniquely concerned with kind of searching out the events of history and how these things tie together the meaning beneath the events of history. This is something we do. This is not something that animals do, right? Like, like I've, I've heard it said that dogs don't really have a sense of time, that one minute is the same as one hour or one week. Apparently, there's some debate about that, but I've never met a dog philosopher. Like, dogs don't, dogs don't worry about what economists are predicting for the stock market next year. They're, they're, not, they're not thinking about how the events of the 1970s have shaped dog society today. Dolphins, as smart as they are, as far as I know, don't have existential crises Cats don't worry about what the appropriate course of action is in any appropriate, in any season, because for cats, every season is the time to do the maximum amount of evil that they possibly can. <laughs> for cats, the only action is whatever is the most wicked thing they can do now, because cats are the worst. But the point here is that humans have a unique relationship with time, right? We, we are we're searching out Meaning, and yet there's frustration here. Like the author of Ecclesiastes we looked at last week where he goes, I searched in all of these places and everything was meaningless. Like people are are looking, they're searching, and yet so much in this world, in this life, just feels like it comes up empty. And so we're like, we're we're wired for this, we long for this, and yet it so often feels like we're, we're let down. You know? 
Like we, we want something, but we can't find it. It's, it's, like, it's like he says in chapter 3 that no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There's this great image uh, that this uh, scholar named Derek Kidner writes. He, uh, I want to share it with you. He says, we are like the desperately nearsighted, inching their way along some great tapestry or fresco in the attempt to take it in. We see enough of its quality, but the grand design escapes us. For we can never stand back far enough to view it as its creator does, whole and entire from the beginning to the end. Isn't that a great image? So think about like, like time as being this, this tapestry and we are desperately nearsighted. We're just like inch by inch. We just see a tiny piece of it. And then we move on to the next little piece. And we, we long to see the whole design. We long to understand how this all fits together. But we can't because we're limited. God has put eternity in our hearts, but we can't fathom what he's done from beginning to end. We are limited human creatures, but God isn't. God isn't limited. See, he is, he is able to somehow stand back and, and see everything in, in the scope of time. And, and so Ecclesiastes says he knows, the, the author says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. That God has put eternity in our hearts, but he is eternal. That we, we are bound to time. We try to be, we try unsuccessfully to become lords of time, and yet God actually is the Lord of time. Here's some words from the prophet Isaiah. These are good words. These are humbling words. He said, all people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. His word endures See, philosophies come and go, and, and empires rise and fall, and great human beings ascend, and then inevitably they go down to the dust. But God is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who was and who is and who will be. He, he, is, he is Lord over all of history. And this, this tension between who we are and our relationship with time and who God is in his relationship with, that, with time, that tension is meant to do something to us. The reason we, we, we feel this tension is, is because God wants to bring us to a place of worship. He says in, uh, in verse 14, God does it. God does all this so that people will fear him. And this isn't about like... Um, my fear of time travel. This is, this is, this is reverence. This is awe. This, this is worship. That when we see our relationship with time and God's relationship with time, we are brought to a place of worship. And this is important, again, because we so often kind of exalt ourselves above time. I talked about how time travel is so compelling because it tells us that given the right technology, we might actually overcome the force of time. We might actually be able to gain a measure of kind of immortality on our, on our own terms. You've got these mega billionaires from places like Amazon and Google and Oracle that are investing their billions right now in trying to extend their life 
forever if they can, but at least for another two to 300 years. And if us lucky peons are, are, you know, are able, maybe we'll benefit from this technology someday as well. But that's what they're investing in. They want to overcome the forces of time. That's what we as humans do. 